Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tolman. Welcome back to a special episode. We've got a crossover episode today of Talk Dizzy to Me and some of our new friends over at A Dose of Dizzy. I'm Dr. Danielle Tolman, a vestibular physical therapist, and as always, joined by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross, a vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist. And we have two awesome guests today. Um, I'm going to toss it over to Liz and Daniel to introduce themselves and their podcast. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much. We are so excited to be here. My name is Liz Femler. I'm an audiologist, and I'll let Daniel introduce himself. Uh, my name is Daniel Romero. Um, I am also a vestibular audiologist, and we're just so uh, incredibly excited to be a part of this and kind of um, kind of work on this um, growing collaboration uh, with our physical therapy friends. So thank you so much for having us on. I was so excited when we found your episode. I think we looked at um, vestibular testing and diving into that episode. I loved how informational you guys were. I loved how well you communicated back and forth. And I just, there's a huge, huge collaboration and crossover between vestibular physical therapy and rehab and audiology. And it's been um, more noticeable to me as I've been going throughout the years and working closer and closer with audiologists. And I really, really think that more physical therapists need to be aware of this and um, also uh, um, collaborate with other audiologists in their area too. So I'm so excited to have you guys on here. And the episode that we kind of threw together is basically five things that vestibular audiologists want PTs to know and five things that PTs want vestibular audiologists to know. So I'm so excited to dig in. Um, why don't we throw it back to you guys to kind of get us started and start talking about some of the things that audiologists want us PTs to know. Yeah, I think this, we've prefaced the, the episode quite well because I think vestibular is really where audiologists and physical therapists can join together in a great collaboration. And I think it's new to both of our fields because I know I've been working in a private practice and we hired a physical therapist and the joining together between PT and AUD has been incredible. Um, so what I've learned working really closely with the physical therapist is there's a quite a few things that we wish we could tell you. You know, first, right off the bat. Um, and I know Daniel also works with physical therapists on a daily basis. But one thing, the first thing we both thought of, and Daniel can expand on this, but is that the impairment can exist beyond VOR impairment, which of course you all know this because you are deep in the vestibular world. But there's, there's actually quite a bit of impairment that can exist beyond the VOR. Yeah, just to sort of uh, bounce, bounce off of, uh, piggyback off, off Liz, I think for the last uh, maybe 10 or 15 years, we've sort of now expanded our ability to assess and determine the function of all 10 vestibular end organs. And so, like all of us are very familiar with, we know that VOR impairment is sort of the main thing that we're trying to rule out when patients come um, and, and, and undergo some vestibular testing. That, of course, can range... Um, for many, maybe somebody who does may be listening um, and may not be familiar with this, but it can range across a wide uh, variety of different frequencies or speeds. But also, we uh, we have the ability to test um, the function of each otolith end organ through uh, more non-invasive electrophysiological techniques. And so, um, I think it's we're headed into an exciting time, especially on on the assessment side, to be able to really pinpoint where. Um, that impairment is actually, or uh, pinpoint where the impairment actually is um, throughout the system. And so I'd be excited to be able to, to ask so many questions that I have with regard to how, how physical therapists may, um, may sort of tailor their treatment depending on uh, where that, that uh, impairment been isolated to. I will say that it is great that you bring up the otolith organs because, you know, we at bedside testing cannot really accurately assess for that or assess for dysfunction. And that's where I think um, for some patients, especially if they haven't been progressing or we haven't see, um, seen a lot of progression in their uh, vestibular therapy, that sometimes it's otolith dysfunction that's that missing piece. And we have no idea until we get to them to testing with the audiology side of things that we can kind of see the full picture, the full spectrum of what's going on. So it's a really, really great point. Now to continue along those lines, I have a question for you before we go further. 
How much of this do you explain to the patient? Are you telling them where the impairment lies and what they need to do further? Or how does that work from your end? That's a great question. And I feel like this is a cop out, but it's really not. It really depends on the patient um, because we all know patients differ in how much information they want and how much maybe information that they can absorb in that moment, because many of them come in very stressed. They've been trying to find an answer for years and years and years. So I think it's, it can be easy for us because we're like nerds and we love to, you know, dig into that diagnostic terminology. But I feel like a lot of times patients just want to be validated that something has been found and be able to have a clear treatment plan moving forward. So I know a lot of times I don't get into all of the like detail specifics of like, oh, your left utricle is not, you know, some, I, I use pictures and I try to explain, you know, this part of the ear was not as strong as this part of the ear. Um, and we're going to try to teach your brain on how to use the different strengths. But sometimes we don't get into all that terminology because it can get very overwhelming, you know, even from the audiologist perspective, let alone the patient side. Sure. That makes total sense. Moving forward in diagnostic tests, that's kind of the next area that you guys want to inform us PTs about. So I'll let you take that next topic away. Yeah. So I think just expanding, obviously we are focused on the diagnostic profile of the patient. And so beyond just telling of the end organs, those five end organs, we can also give an idea of the nerves and beyond. Um, so our tests can be really beneficial to physical therapists because we can look isolate again if it's a peripheral issue which usually involves the end organs or nerves or if it's a central issue or both so we have tests that can really distinguish that obviously if you've been in vestibular diagnostics and therapy for a while you have an idea based on um, a lot of times how the patient is presenting where they might lie but a lot of times confirmation of these uh, tests can be really beneficial for the patient and you know sometimes even the amount of the ear that's impacted can affect the long-term prognosis. So I know there's been some studies of like, um, you know, one nerve versus both branches of the nerve being impacted, affecting how long it takes them to rehab and ultimate outcomes. And so that information can be really beneficial for you to know the extent. Um, and maybe just like, I know a lot of times we depend on a caloric test as one of our tests to determine how much function is in the inner ear. So it's, it would be beneficial, I would think as a physical therapist to know, how much function or how much strength, sometimes I explain to patients, the ear is putting out to the brain, how much communication there is there, because then you know how much you have to work with. Now, question for you here too. Sometimes in a, in a perfect world, right, we would have all this information available to us when we see patients, but many times that's not the case. A patient does not have any sort of diagnostic test when they come to us. And as you alluded to, we can usually decipher where we need to go with intervention based on how the patient's presenting and how the history, um, how the history goes with the patient, how the patient interview goes. So in what cases would you say we are seeing a patient and this patient has not had diagnostic testing? What cases would we say we need this patient to have diagnostic testing in order to do our job really, really well? So I, I would say also to sort of piggyback on um, on sort of what Liz alluded to in our ability to sort of determine, um, you know, differentiate peripheral versus central vestibular dysfunction. But also, I would say in cases where maybe they're not improving in in therapy, especially if, um, you know, you're, you're undergoing, you're doing some vestibular rehab and just something is not... Um, improving that maybe you just would like to maybe dig a little deeper on. And in addition, even with some of our, our, our testing, we, there's, there's quite a bit of literature to support just different diagnostic test patterns in some of our, um, in some of our assessments that may help to gain some clarity or maybe further confirm or particular diagnosis. I know with like, um, uh, vestibular evoked myogenic potentials where we're measuring otolith um, organ function that one of um, the amazing things about VEMP testing is that it could be potentially used as a um, screener for semicircular canal dehiscence and so 
there's certainly other um, test patterns that we can potentially pick up on that can help gain, give a little bit more information about what may be going on with the patient. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, frequency tuning, um, you know, broad frequency tuning when um, in patients with Meniere's disease, other patterns we may pick up with vestibular migraines. So there's certainly a lot of um, support that I think we could provide to be able to just, I think, help give you the, the, the therapist trying to rehabilitate this patient, maybe just a little bit more clarity um, on, on what may be going on or what may be uh, contributing uh, to their symptoms. Sure, sure. Giving that full picture. Now on the flip side, though, is there ever a patient they haven't had testing before where you would say, let's hold off on the testing because maybe it's not going to impact my treatment or outcomes? What would you say for that? That's a great question. I was trying to think, you know, in our ideal world, we test everybody because we love seeing dizzy people just as much as you guys do. Um, the patients, I would not recommend. I mean, if they're reporting dizziness, I do think it's warranted at any time. I would say a lot of times within the first day or two of a neuritis attack, if they're still like actively very symptomatic, it's kind of similar to like, would they come in for a physical therapy session with you? So like, what would be things that would prevent them from coming in? Probably if they're actively sick, if they've just had a head injury five hours ago, I probably don't need to see them yet. You know, I think it's kind of the same general basis. Beyond that, if they're reporting dizziness or balance disorders, it's 100% warranted. And I, you know, I really think there can be something to benefit. Um, a lot of times, I think it's patient understanding and education up front and feeling comforted in that everything's been looked at for dizziness. I think that's a little bit of it. And a lot of times I've told physical therapists I work with, like Daniel said, if it's not getting better in your expected timeline, send them away. Or if you see eye movements, you don't know how to interpret. Or if you don't have video goggles, these are ways we can support you. I know a lot of times I've had some cases that a patient looks like they have BPBV. There's a lot of disorders and scary disorders that can mimic BPBV. And we want to work with you to be able to rule those out and to really, you know, look at the eye movements in detail with the technology that we have. Absolutely. And I'll add to that. Oh, sorry. We're all, we're all so excited to jump in. Go oh, no. Ahead. I was just uh, going to. Oh, no. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to quickly say, I'm sorry. Um, or, you know, in one particular um, situation where maybe testing wouldn't necessarily. You know, testing wouldn't necessarily be, it, it, could, it may help to also determine uh, whether or not uh, somebody is stable or undergoing, um, undergoing quick changes. Uh, it, it may help to determine if something is irritative or, um, you know, whether or not their, their lesion is stable. I know that there are some cases where um, even something like rotational chair chest testing may be completed over a, a, an X amount of time, and that can help determine whether or not somebody may be compensated. Um, and if they're still presenting with symptoms, um, that those types of results can may help to kind of direct your treatment a little, a little more. I was just going to say one other um, situation that I wanted to throw your way and see how you respond to it is what if I have a patient who is extremely anxious about getting testing done, would you still say, send it to send her or him to me and let's get this over with? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's really where people who audiologists who are trained in vestibular testing know that that's part of it. And it's completely understandable. I mean, you know, many patients are just as anxious to come to therapy and work on their dizziness because you're going to provoke their dizziness, which is not what they want to do. And so I think it's part of our training and experience that you are an encourager, a cheerleader. The patient knows what the ultimate goal of the testing is. And many of us, I think if not all of us, are very cautious of the patient's needs throughout testing to be able to get what they need while still feeling comfortable and understanding the end goal. So I know vestibular testing gets a very bad rep. It is not bad. It is very doable. Anyone can do it like ages super young to super old. And we make sure that we get the information that's important for the patient. It's a good question. 
That was along the lines that I was going to add into that. Um, but that's where I think having a good relationship between physical therapy and audiology, where if a patient is going to be sent for testing, you know, that is uh, something that we should prepare the patient for to tell them, here's what we're going to glean from this. You're going to get answers. You're either going to check the boxes off of here's what we know, or you're going to rule things out. And this is going to help you and getting you figuring out to what's going on. Is it going to be uncomfortable? Probably, but we can prepare the patients for that to try to help ease their mind a little bit. And I think if their hand is held um, all throughout, it is definitely achievable and testing is absolutely warranted and, and very, very helpful for helping determine treatment. So yes, there might be some cases where people are really, really anxious about it, but if they're with the right people who can walk them through it, they can definitely get through it and come out on the other side with some more answers. That's, I think both of you speak to kind of the overall patient perspective uh, or the patient perception of vestibular testing. There was a, a study that um, I was a part of a couple of years ago and we did, it was more, more or less a qualitative analysis of what patients, how patients viewed vestibular testing. And I will say our most important test, of course, you know, or the gold standard, and everybody knows this, the caloric test. And unfortunately it's, that's provided or that's contributed to a lot of the negative views of vestibular testing. Uh, but I will say um, over the years and advancements in, in our assessments uh, with the addition of rotational chair, video head impulse testing, VEMP testing, um, those tests are much more tolerable, I would um, say, than traditional caloric testing um, and still allows us to really, really determine with confidence what underlying peripheral or central vestibular function is uh, where, where pretty much that's at. And so um, hopefully over the years, um, we can change, um, uh, have a, have, we can kind of implant more of, I guess, a, a positive uh, view of vestibular testing going forward. But still, it's very, uh, it's very, um, it still kind of has a kind of a negative, a negative tone to it. There were certainly um, during that study results, patients reported caloric testing is barbaric or uh, there were, there's, there were just so many words that pay people and, you know, cause they, they, they go online and they look at uh, how, what vestibular testing is before they come in. And so they come in and they're very anxious, but usually by the time we're done with them, they're, they're, they're like, Oh, that wasn't so bad. And I think it's, you know, it's great that you're asking this question because many times our referrals start with physical therapists. So when, when people are dizzy, they may start with physical therapy. So I really believe in the power of words with dizzy patients. I don't use the word dizzy when I say this test is going to make you dizzy. You know, when we're describing rotational chair, I really try to avoid those, um, words and not that I don't prepare the patient, but I really do think there's a lot of power behind certain words that you use. And I think it's great that physical therapists are thinking ahead of time. How can I portray this testing not to have a negative connotation, not like you're going to get dizzy. It's, you know, there may be some tests where you feel movement, they're going to talk you through it super easy. Everyone does it, you know, and I think just giving the patient confidence that they can do it and they will be able to do it. And it's going to, you know, glean some really good information. So I think the fact you're asking that question is a really great starting point. Well, that kind of leads you guys into your next point that you want to make, whereas it's not just getting information initially that this can also be useful as treatment goes on. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot that our diagnostic tests can show. One of the coolest pieces of information that I think is that the test can show the status of compensation or how well your brain is adjusting to the injury. And I think this is really a valuable tool that not a lot of audiologists take advantage of and definitely not a lot of physical therapists. And I think it's the coolest collaboration because if we identify, you know, a vestibular neuritis, for example, and we refer to physical therapy, or maybe they were already there, we can follow up in a week, in two weeks, and monitor and see how the physical therapy is working. And it's actually been incredible, you know, if for those collaborations, the physical therapists have loved to see the information that, hey, what I'm doing is working, or why is what I'm doing not working? Is there something else going on centrally that's preventing this compensation status? And so I think it's, we have a number of tools, rotary chair is an example, we do a head shake test in the dark, you know, we have a lot of things to show us where the compensation status lies. And I think it's super powerful in traditional vestibular cases, and especially in concussion. Um, and that's really my subspecialty. But I think the vestibular testing has a huge role to play there. 
Now, can I just ask briefly about that? Um, you know, when it comes to a lot of patients getting vestibular testing, they're going to bigger multidisciplinary clinics where it might take them a while to get in and get evaluated. You know, are there other smaller private clinics that do vestibular testing that we can send patients to um, for those follow-ups a little bit sooner rather than later in terms of getting a, a um, recheck again in six months or a year with these bigger clinics? Great question. So vestibular audiology is a very small world still, but I do think, you know, in the next couple of years, it is going to be growing quite a bit. We're experiencing some changes in our field that are making people look a lot more towards some of our specialties. Um, there is already a very large network of clinics. I know um, AIB, the American Institute of Balance, has really worked on expanding the audiology private practice world um, so that this vestibular testing is more accessible to patients. Um, but it's still very geographically dependent. So depending on where you are, you may not have access to it. But if you don't right now, I will like mark my words, let's record it in stone. I think in, in the next three to five years, it's going to be very widely available. I like that idea of having another tool to utilize with our patients because, you know, it's another set of clinicians that are, are touching base with them and making them feel like they're being followed up with and that they're not just being passed from person to person and being forgotten about. Um, so I like that. Uh, I like that a lot. Is there any sort of, um, you know, we have a directory with the Vestibular Disorders Association as well as with the um, Vestibular Special Interest Group with the APTA and the NeuroSIG. Um, is there any sort of directory that audiologists have that participate in vestibular testing like that where we can find you? Or is this more kind of boots on the ground? We need to do our research for who's in our area when it comes to referring out. I would say it's more boots on the ground. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to say. You know, they're, they're, yeah, so they're... Unfortunately, again, it's 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 a very small subspecialty of audiology. Like Liz mentioned, it is going to be growing. Um, but our, I would say there are, certainly are a lot of um, vestibular-focused uh, professional organizations out there. The American Balance Society is really huge. That's always um, um, and you know that's it's a combination of uh, audiologists, physical therapists, neurologists, and it's definitely a tight-knit community. Um, I've always felt like, and so you know, certainly reaching out to um, them, they'll, uh, somebody will be able to connect you with a vestibular audiologist, at least um, who may be able to provide sufficient testing or testing that um, the, the type of testing that you're looking for. But um, unfortunately, not necessarily a, um, a universal directory um, that will guide you to one specific location, depending on your geographic location. There is technically through the American Academy of Audiology, there is a find an audiologist feature. However, that does not exclude, you know, separately the vestibular pathway. Like some people say it on their profiles, but um, vestibular specialists, you ask us, we will find someone in your area if you if you ever need anybody. But hopefully that's something we can work towards as this subspecialty grows, but it's still quite small. And I will say that with the Vestibular Disorders Association, their directory is not just limited to us vestibular therapists. So as audiologists, the two of you or your network, if you want to get your name onto a directory, definitely check that out or any other audiologists that have vestibular interest, please check out the VITA uh, directory and join so patients can find you easily, yes. more easily. I'm I know I'm on there. So I've had a few patients come through that. So yes, I, that was the other thing I was thinking, like, I know I found some physical therapists through there too. So it's a great option. And Abby and I are actually joining um, the American Balance Society uh, at the start of the year. So we're very excited just to um, uh, jump on that boat and start uh, being a little bit more active in that realm too, because we definitely like the idea of the multidisciplinary approach and being more engaged in that medical community. So we'll be checking them out because um, I know the membership restarts at the beginning of the year. So we'll be jumping on that and uh, exploring that in the next year, which will be fun. Yes. And we, we go every year. So if you ever want to go to the conference, it's incredible. And we'll, we'll meet you there. But um, I know we have two other things that we are thinking of that physical therapists may want to know. One, I think this is, I think I added this one, but when in doubt with nystagmus, refer to vestibular audiology. So I think it is so incredible that physical therapists have like knowledge on the entire body. I think that is incredible. We spend four years on just the ear and I feel like I didn't know anything like I wanted to know when I graduated. And I think it can get 
um, complicated, especially if a physical therapist is new to vestibular, to interpret eye movements. There's definitely an experience factor behind that. And we are trained in vestibular audiology to look at the eyes the entire time. So we are very comfortable and confident in doing that. And in fact, our technology allows us to compare eye movements to age norm values and to really be able to tell you, you know, is this 65-year-old abnormal just because they're aging or because they truly have something that's abnormal? And I think that's something that can be hard to discern on the bedside and where the benefit of our ocular motor testing can lie. If you ever see anything that looks weird in the eyes, definitely refer. That's a really, really great point. And, you know, even with the vestibular system in physical therapy school, it's not covered extremely well um, consistently from school to school. You know, I had a rare exposure to it because we had a specialist come in and teach a weekend course, like a con ed course for um, clinicians out of school. Um, so I had that experience and then a clinical rotation, but otherwise we get a very small dose of it in school, in class. And then, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of a thing. And then it also gets difficult when you jump into learning vestibular therapy as a bedside clinician, because you learn to look at nystagmus bedside, and then you have to relearn kind of how to look at nystagmus if you do get infrared video goggles. So sometimes people get very easily turned around. Um, they get more focused like on the infrared video goggles, you know, which side is right or which you know side is left and which eye you're looking at. And they kind of get caught in the weeds. So you know, it is definitely difficult. I, I agree with you when in doubt, definitely refer to um, vestibular audiology, have this testing done and, and kind of get a clearer picture um, instead of just throwing something against the wall and seeing if it works. But yeah, it does get a little complicated and, and hard at times, especially in the beginning. Yeah. And then also aside from nystagmus, what other things might we hear or see from a patient that we think, oh my gosh, need to send them to Liz or Dan? Definitely anything ear related, sound sensitivity, tinnitus, those are really big, you know, post head injury or with other dizziness disorders, change in hearing, difficulty hearing and noise. Honestly, any ear related complaints should be evaluated because they could relate to the dizziness. So we know the vestibular system is in the inner ear. It's connected. It shares, you know, blood, nerves and fluid with the hearing system. So if there's any auditory concerns, that actually could be very important for their ultimate diagnosis. It's not something you want to ignore, diminish or say that it'll go away or wear earplugs. Those are all not super appropriate nor evidence-based recommendations for if a patient is experiencing one of those things. And it's very understandable, you know, if you haven't had training in the auditory system, if someone says, these sounds are loud, it's like, yeah, let's go in a quiet room, put on some earmuffs, you'll be fine. And it's completely understandable, but it can be avoided and the patient can have a better prognosis if they get referred early on. Excellent. I think you guys have one more point that you definitely wanted to hit home and hammer home for us. <laughs> Yeah, and it really has to kind of, it, it it comes back to the advantages of using some of the video oculography goggles. Um, and that's our ability to really measure these eye movements vision denied. Um, some of the eye movements that we see either when determining if um, nystagmus, whether it's positional in nature or not, um, is something peripheral or is it central, um, are all very subtle often the times and, and, and often aren't even pronounced until you shut those goggles. Um, and so, you know, just to sort of um, give a little bit more insight in some of our uh, standard uh, testing under vision denied conditions, um, most of the time we put the patients in, in, a, in a wide variety of different positions just to see how that changes um, the nystagmus, um, you know, whether they're laying in supine with their head turned to the right, left, body left or body right. And you'll, and Liz will agree, you just see um, sometimes just a wild uh, pattern sometimes of nystagmus. And it's, it's often in those situations where you're trying to characterize, is it upbeating? Is it fatiguing? Is it not? Uh, where it really helps you determine whether this is more peripheral nystagmus based on what's going on, or is there some underlying central or CNS involvement here. Um, and so a lot of that is is ultimately determined in, in vision denied conditions. We can also see, of course, spontaneous nystagmus um, that is more pronounced under the vision denied conditions that may be a little bit more um, difficult to see with, with, with the naked eye. And I think, you know, one of the biggest benefits, if I could leave you home with something from audiologists about 
eye movements and video goggles, it's not just identifying the presence of nystagmus. Anyone can do that off the streets and say someone's eyes are wiggling. It's the quantification of nystagmus that really is where the power lies because not only you can use that even as a compensation measurement. If someone comes in, you know, with 13 degrees of spontaneous nystagmus, they go to PT for a week and now it's down to two, that's extremely powerful. And it's really awesome for a patient to see that progress. It's great motivation to keep going back to therapy. So the quantification can lead, you know, to patient motivation and better diagnostics. And I think that can be challenging to quantify, you know, from the PT side many times. Well, you're absolutely right because when we use infrared goggles in the clinic, we are looking at the quality of eye movement. We do not quantify. So there is a big difference in why, although, you know, we might bring goggles out with patients that go, oh, they did this when they did all the testing. I'm like, okay, well, I just need to see it from my end. And I'm just looking at what we're dealing with and what's going on during testing. You know, um, you had talked about changing positions. I love putting goggles on patients and say, get into the position that makes you dizzy. And then, you know, assessing what's going on. We're looking more at things from a quality and functional point of view where we can appreciate that you guys look at things from the quantitative point of view. You can put a number to it and you can compare. You know, it's one thing for you to be able to do that and go from 13 degrees of nystagmus to two degrees and for me to go, yeah, this looks a lot lighter in comparison to the last time I saw you. So there's definitely some more merit behind that. Um, but definitely having the vision denied is something that has um, helped me out a lot of times in the clinic with the infrared goggles and assisting in a hyperventilation test to look for acoustic schwannomas and neuromas or um, head shake testing, massoid vibration, even um, as simple as roll testing for horizontal canal, PPBB, you know, the brain can suppress that horizontal nystagmus in room light. So if you remove that fixation, you might be able to pull out a light cupulolithiasis. Or in one case, I had a um, an instance of a light cupula or, you know, type of a situation that was a little bit more tricky to identify, but we wouldn't have seen that. We didn't deny vision. So that is a really, really great point. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's probably many physical therapists who are listening to this who don't know an audiologist or have never interacted with one. And even if you don't have a vestibular audiologist in your area, it may be good to get connected. I'd recommend getting connected with an audiologist just for ear-related complaints. Physical therapists spend a lot of time with, time with their patients and find out a lot of information that they may not tell their general practitioners. And so I think even hearing and knowing that you have a connection in the audiology world, even if it's not to help you with dizziness, um, would be very beneficial for your patients' overall outcomes. Really great. So that's a little wrap up on what audiologists want us vestibular therapists to know. But now I believe you have some questions for us. Yes, we, we do. do. Yes, we do. <laughs> we have lots. We had to <laughs> narrow it down. Daniel, yeah. you, you go ahead and start. You've yes. got some good ones. Um, now, the first one that I think is, is would be of interest to anybody, um, any vestibular audiology student or any vestibular practicing vestibular audiologist to really know is, you know, we don't necessarily touch on vestibular rehab therapy, not even necessarily learning the ins and outs from a vestibular therapist about what it is. We just know it's sort of this black box of treatment that, um, you know, helps patients get better. And so um, what I would, um, I guess one of the first questions that I'm, that I would be interested in knowing is now we know that patients experience dizziness, imbalance or both. Um, is vestibular rehab sort of used in all those scenarios or is there like a balanced uh, therapy? Is that separate from vestibular rehab? Are those uh, Is that something that you can speak? Uh, can you go ahead and run, run down that for us? Yeah, I mean it. So, you know, it, this is like the textbook answer. It all depends on the patient, right? The one thing I love about vestibular therapy or, um, you know, balance therapy, it's very individualized to each patient. So, you know, we bring them in for a vestibular evaluation, um, especially if there's dizziness and or imbalance, we look at everything head to toe. So we are doing functional balance activities or tests, um, gait uh, analysis and testing. And then we're looking at the bedside vestibular sides of things. So we might have patients that come in that are just imbalanced because they are um, little decompensated. They have peripheral neuropathy, they, you know, their vision's going, and that's more of like a balance therapy. But we might incorporate some vestibular exercises just because they haven't been moving much because they've been imbalanced and they're decompensated. Um, we do have some patients that come in that are strictly vestibular. You know, it's a BPV issue. It's a neuritis issue um, with acute loss. Um, it might be a bilateral loss issue. And in that case, it's definitely more um, vestibular therapy. And that's broken down into different um, 
types of therapy. There are uh, there's adaptation where we try to get the vestibular system a little bit stronger and working again, um, getting some function back. There's habituation where you're trying to habituate the patient to their symptoms and trying to get them used to not feeling so symptomatic with the things that trigger their symptoms. And then there's substitution where say you have a bilateral loss patient, you know, we are going to try to get them to utilize other balance strategies using their somatosensory system, their visual system to uh, make up for that vestibular loss. So, you know, there's a, there, vestibular therapy can get kind of complicated and it's identifying which issues um, the patient has areas of dysfunction in and then focusing on that. And that's where a lot of the testing, like you guys had mentioned before, really come in handy because if I have a bilateral loss patient, I'm not going to make them spend hours and hours and hours on VOR right? Because if that's not coming back, if they have total loss, like that's, you know, uh, um, you know, a, a total loss to kind of sit there and do VOR exercises with them. Uh, instead, we want to work on gates with assisted devices, and we want to get them used to being able to move and try to catch their balance as well as they can. So it gets a little complicated. Um, but I will say, since I've, I've gotten into the realm of vestibular therapy, I do use some vestibular exercises with general balance patients, especially if they're of the aging population and could benefit because they're just not used to moving. How often do we walk backwards in our day? How often are we moving our head as much or, you know, following targets? Um, so, you know, it can get a little bit muddy. And a lot of times there are people that are just coming in for vestibular, but most times we can kind of merge the two. I want to add to that and say that uh, in schooling, I would venture to guess that most physical therapists would feel comfortable treating a patient who just had no vestibular involvement and needed a little tune-up with their balance, right? Maybe some fall risk assessments, uh, incorporating some changes to their home environment to make sure that they are as safe as possible. But not all physical therapists when they graduate have the vestibular component. I also want to add that there are a lot of clinics, unfortunately, that advertise that they do vestibular mm -hmm. rehab, but what it actually is, is just strictly balance exercises. They're missing that diagnostic and deeper understanding of actually what's going on and why we're doing certain exercises to uh, help this patient. So there is a difference, but they also are very tied together. Oh, and Abby, we um, there was also, uh, we had a really cool example of when it can kind of start with one and turn into another. Um, for example, I had a patient who was referred to me for vestibular issues, and it turns out it was purely central, not vestibular related at all. Vestibular therapy was not going to be appropriate for this patient, and it turned more into a um, balance regimen, balance uh, therapy versus vestibular. Doing VR exercises all day with this guy would not have helped him whatsoever. And he went from, you know, or a vestibular referral to just a pure functional balance patient. And then Abby had an example of the reverse. Yeah. On the flip side of that, there was a, this happens actually, I think more often than not, there's a, usually an older adult who complains of worsening balance. And so that's a flag for let's send them PT and work on their balance, but they're not necessarily describing room spinning vertigo, which would be a hallmark of BPPV that we look for. However, their imbalance that they were experiencing was actually due to BPPV and a general therapist might not recognize that without the referral to vestibular rehab. So it started as just general balance turned into we need to treat this patient's BPBV and then see what we're left with. I think that's a good point and you that you bring up because patients describe their dizziness completely differently. So to some people, it's a balance problem when in fact it's a dizzy, what we see as maybe dizziness or vertigo. So I think that's why it's nice to have the collaborations between um, our different fields because sometimes patients don't know how to describe it, especially if it's the first time they're experiencing it. And I don't blame them. It would be very scary and hard to describe. And so it's good to evaluate all of those features. Um, one thing that I have, I feel like I ask every physical therapist I've ever met this, but we obviously do a lot of head extension related positions and we are not trained in anything besides basically ear brain. So what recommendations would you have for us as we are putting patients in these positions and anything we need to be aware of with, um, you know, especially the cervical system? We have a few actually, um, 
One is, you know, so many people will ask, well, what about, you know, vascular insufficiency, like the, you know, the VBI issues. And we actually don't even recommend that you test for that anymore. The VBI test to see if there is any um, insufficiency is actually has a sensitivity of 0%. Um, most of the time, I would just recommend that if you're working with a patient that has a vascular history, just be mindful of that. And when you do put them back, just monitor their symptoms a little bit more closely, make sure they're, you know, not getting tunnel vision or anything along those lines and just being careful. Um, one thing that I do with patients, and this is actually just something I do with every patient is I tend not to drop patients heads off of end of tables, um, just because I want to eliminate any sort of strain on the cervical spine and having them guard with their neck. Cause they feel like they're not supported. I usually have a pillow at the um, base of their spine so that when they lie flat, their head extends over the pillow and can rest on the treatment table. So you're still achieving that extension over the pillow. They feel nice and secure on the table um, where they get a little bit more somatosensory information, especially if they start to spin, but then they're not guarding that neck as much either. And you can kind of guard your patient a little bit better where, you know, you can stabilize their head. You can observe their eyes a little bit better if they're not wearing goggles, but um, not overextending their head off the table, I think has been a huge help for patients and they just feel a little bit more secure. And for some uh, patients, you know, if they're on the table, you don't even need a pillow if they've got increased thoracic kyphosis. So we're thinking of my, our, our little older um, ladies who tend to be more, um, you know, flex forward with that little bit of an increased kyphosis. You can actually achieve positional testing really well, just having them lie flat on the table without a pillow and without extending them off the, uh, the bed. Um, another uh, piece of advice I can give is during V-HIT testing. Um, so cervical spine range of motion, you have a lot of people who, if they have limited cervical range of motion, they are really hesitant to let you move their head, um, especially if they're really limited at end range. And one thing that you can do is instead of thrusting patients' heads um, laterally, so from midline to lateral, you can actually bring them out laterally to their area of comfort and then thrust the midline, just remembering which way your direction of thrust is going to make sure you're testing or you're writing down your results for that year. But um, by you know, including that with that patient, they'll feel a little bit more comfortable. You're going to um, get a little bit less resistance from them and you'll probably uh, do less harm if they do start to really guard and we're trying to yank them around in different positions. I want to add, at least from a physical therapy standpoint, sometimes if I see a patient who's really limited in, in their cervical spine, the truth is they're coming to you because they're getting symptoms. So one of the things I like to do is just say to them, go however you need to go, position yourself however you need to position yourself as you normally would to bring the symptoms on so that I can identify what that position looks like. And then the other thing I like to do, if necessary, if I'm not getting the cervical extension I need, which this might be different for your office, but we typically just have flat um, treatment tables. Um, so if I'm not getting the cervical extension that I need, one thing that was really helpful at a prior clinic that I worked at was we had a huge wedge. So we would sit the patient at the highest part of the wedge, and then we'd get that uh, cervical extension basically by having them lie back on the wedge. So their cervical spine was neutral, but we still were putting them in an anatomical position uh, that we needed to bring on the BPPV in that case. Um, another one would be, this is not necessarily cervical, but if they have lumbar issues, you can do something like a sideline test versus um, a Dick's Hall Pike. Yeah, those are great tips. And similarly, and then I think Danielle's one more, but as far as uh, we do a lot of bedside balance tests, and I always am curious, what's the safest for me and the patient in those situations if we're doing like a modified cat sib or something like that, because not every audiology clinic does have, you know, all the fancy posturography equipment. So what's the safest uh, things to keep in mind in those situations? I mean, um, one of the, the safest things that you can do is if you're really concerned, um, put the patient in a corner, right? You can stand next to the patient or in front of the patient. Um, but a lot of times when patients lose their balance, they want to put their arms out or they want to lean back into something. And you can put them in the corner so that they're not touching the walls. They're still free floating in space, facing out. So they're not facing the corner, but facing out of the corner. And you can do your modified cat sib um, in that position just so that they have some extra support and that they're not, you know, reaching and grabbing onto you. Um, we have gate belts. Um, they're, they're, um, fairly inexpensive and, um, you know, easy to kind of tuck away in a drawer if you have, if you can look for those. Um, 
Um, but also, I mean, you know, just being smart. Um, if the patient couldn't walk back to your room for testing, um, you know, you're gonna be a little bit higher guard, but if the patient's able to live at home and function, um, pretty well and walk back to your room, like, you know, you're probably going to be decently okay, um, with that patient. Um, if you are suspecting bilateral loss with this patient, be ready to be there for them during that fourth condition of the, of the modified cat sip, because there's a good chance they might fall like a tree and not even know it's happening. So that's where the corner comes in great handy um, for that type of a situation. Yeah. To add to that, Danny touched on this, but your assessment is starting from the waiting room, right? You are seeing how this patient functions and already have an idea on their fall risk just by watching them walk. Patients don't realize it either. So sometimes the walk that you get from the waiting room to your treatment room or evaluation room versus the walk you get when you ask them to walk looks different because they know in one you're watching and one you're not. Not, but you are. Um, I wanted to touch on two from a telehealth standpoint because that's one of the biggest questions we get is how on earth can we safely provide vestibular rehab via telehealth if part of vestibular rehab is to challenge a patient's balance and bring on symptoms. And one of the things that I like to talk about or stress is that you, by observing the patient within their own home, you're already seeing all that information that you're getting, you know, when you see a patient walk back to the clinic. And then in addition, sometimes you might take more stepping stones to get to the actual examination tool or evaluation tool that you're trying to do. So Maybe before I have a patient uh, walk and do head turns, if I'm concerned, I might see how a patient does just in sitting while moving their head and then just in standing while moving their head because I cannot be there to physically guard them. The other thing that I do like to do is if I know a patient and I want to challenge them a little bit further is train family members to guard. Guarding, it's I mean, it, it, there's a certain technique, but once you get the technique down, you can pretty much control the patient any, any way they go. So if you have an able-bodied and, um, you know, sound uh, caregiver at home, you can always train too. I love the corner. I also like uh, when we do more walking exercises, I don't start them in a very open space in their home. I like to have them maybe in a hallway where there's a wall just in case. And then also from an educational standpoint, they know from my education or our education that these exercises may trigger some imbalance or trigger some dizziness or any other symptoms. But um, I also like them to know these exercises or evaluation tools are not meant to make you fall. So if at any point, don't push through, stop, regain your, your stability before we continue on. They need to know that uh, you're not pushing them to the point of, of failure. In this case, you're pushing them to the point of let's stimulate symptoms, but keep you safe. That's wonderful. I feel like I'm learning so much just <laughs> within the short amount of time with both of you. Um, and I know a lot of other, um, you know, audiology folks out there are will, will as well. Now, um, one of the things as, as we're sort of finishing up, what are there anything, is there anything that physical therapists would want vestibular audiologists um, to know um, with regard to, to your daily interactions or your interactions with dizzy, hmm. dizzy patients? Well, I would definitely say that as a profession, we need to be educated by our uh, audiology uh, counterparts. So, you know, don't be ever afraid to, um, you know, market both ways, you know, approach physical therapists and say, you know, we can do a really great collaboration. Here's how we feel like we can help you. And here's how, you know, you can help your patients by, you know, um, telling them, telling them about audiology. Um, you know, I, greatly. I actually have a whole spiel. It probably takes me 20 minutes to get through with patients when they talk about, oh, I don't need hearing aids. I hear fine. And I go, actually, and we sit down and I talk about, you don't know what you can't hear because you can't hear it. And it helps with spatial awareness. And if you don't correct your hearing now, you're going to be more likely to develop dementia and cognitive deficits in the future. And you have to get these looked at because you have to train your brain. And it's not just a microphone you put in your ear. You get in this big, long um, discussion. And I have this cool video I pull up on YouTube. And I show a patient standing on a balanced platform with his hearing aids on and standing on the same platform with his hearing aids off and how much they wobble. And all of a sudden, this light bulb moment goes off in people's heads and they go, I guess maybe I need to go back and get those hearing aids. Um, so, you know, we could be a great resource to audiologists is just sometimes um, we need to be educated about what it is that we can do. 
So, you know, um, for anybody audiology or, you know, related listening, get out and talk to your physical therapist, especially if they're advertising vestibular therapy, go in, check out what they've got, see if it's a true vestibular clinic, and then see if you can partner with them and just teach them what they can do to be helpful in the realm of audiology, because we want to be helpful. We want to help our patients who are complaining about the ringing in the ear and the fullness in the ear. And who do I go to for this, that, and the other thing? We need more um, references and resources to help out. So um, also any tips or tricks that you can give uh, us physical therapists of what we can prepare our patients for when it comes to testing. Um, That's extremely helpful. I love, Liz, your recommendation of not using the word dizzy with testing. I think that is a big takeaway from from all of this and something that I'm going to put into practice with my own patients. Um, Stuff like that is extremely, extremely helpful. So we need to be educated. That is one thing that I um, definitely need to put out there. That we just get very little interaction with audiology. And I think that our physical therapists need to be more aware of that. And I think, you know, this is probably something that people wouldn't say out in the open, but I think there's a little bit of a struggle about where vestibular lies between our fields. And I think that's been a big challenge from the audiology world because we've always, you know, been studying the vestibular system. And in fact, in most states, uh, vestibular rehab is within our license. And so technically audiologists and maybe even audiologists listening to this are providing uh, vestibular rehabilitation and it's not outside of our scope. Um, and so I think it can provide a little tension sometimes between the fields because we need to understand how we can assist each other and not compete against each other. And I think that has been a challenge previously to try to figure that out. And I think even just having this conversation here is better parsing out how we can support each other and really where our unique talents lie with what our knowledge and experience shows. Well, I think that's a good point. And and I think that's one thing that really caught me off guard when I came out of PT school was that there is so much competition. I came out thinking like, I'm a vestibuloholic. This is going to be great. I found all my people and we're all going to be happy. And that's not the case (laughs) whatsoever. Uh, But I think that we're moving in that direction because I think the literature is supporting multidisciplinary approach is best with these patients. Also, why would you want to just corner a patient into saying, you know, vestibular therapy with me is going to be the best thing And that's all you need when that's not the case. How many times have we hit a wall where we need more testing? We need to get medications um, um, prescribed. We need to have another fresh eyes or look into this patient's case. And it's very rare that a vestibular patient needs just one person to fix all their problems. You need a team. And if you don't go out and you don't build that team, you're going to limit yourself greatly. So anybody listening who's not on the same opinion, hop on board because it's going to help you out in the long run. Just say it. It really is a shift of perspective, though. And I think, you know, the the example you brought up with the hearing affecting balance, there's a lot of research that's up and coming about that. And I think that's going to be huge. Um, it's another one of our senses that we use to orient us to the world. And so I think there's a lot of nuggets like that that will bring our, hopefully bring our professions closer together. Abby, take away our telehealth take home message now. Yes. So Liz alluded to this earlier that there's not a ton of audiologists with the focus in vestibular and there's not a ton of therapists that focus in vestibular, although growing. We saw at the International Conference for Vestibular Rehab, I think there was almost 600 uh, people there. So that's a really good sign that this is growing. But telehealth can be critical for someone in a more rural area who may not have access to a vestibular therapist. It doesn't have to be a rural area. It could be urban too. But I have found since pre-COVID, I mean, pre-COVID, I remember I was working in New York and I had a patient flying, symptomatic flying from Florida to New York for care. I think the furthest away that I had a patient come see me was from Thailand. So insane. I mean, these patients can benefit from telehealth if if required. You know, examples of appropriate patients or patients where you might consider something like either a hybrid model where they're in person and telehealth or just telehealth would be if they can't commute on their own, if they have no support to take them to and from appointments, if the commute in itself is so aggravating to their symptoms that the therapy session once they get there is you know, not productive because they're already so stirred up. Um, Also, sometimes, actually all times, vestibular rehab, really the magic happens in the home. 
with the exception of maybe BPPV, where we do a maneuver and hopefully they feel better, which can also be done in the home, by the way. But so many of the exercises, we rely on the repetition and the patient diligently doing our recommendations outside of our session. So what better way to see a patient than within their home environment? We can see exactly how they're doing their exercises, where they're doing their exercises every day when we're not with them. We know we're seeing exactly how it's going to be outside of our session. Uh, It's very different, you know, when you do an exercise I had this favorite hallway in the clinic that I used to work at in New York, and I would always take patients to this hallway, and that's where I did my therapy with them. And that would be very different than, let's say, a patient's home that's cluttered. It's a a studio apartment. They don't have the space that I'm having them practice in. So telehealth, I think, especially since COVID, is very beneficial to this patient population and gives patients access to people like us so we can, you know, help them improve their quality of life and hopefully get them feeling better. I will also add one thing to that. Talk about education, educating patients. That can be done through a phone call. That can be done through a video chat. That can be done certainly through telehealth, right? So much of what they gather from therapy or, you know, sometimes just the conversation that we have with them helps calm them down, helps them understand why why they're going through what they're going through, what's happening in their body that's causing the symptoms and where we need to go in terms of intervention to make them feel better. So a conversation, that's certainly safe to do via telehealth. And I'll say um, when I first met Abby and she told me she was doing vestibular telehealth, I thought she was nuts. Uh, I said, there's no way that that is possibly uh, doable. You don't have goggles. You can't be with a patient. There's no way. Um, And I have completely uh, 180'd on that. Um, I have seen it help a lot of people, especially when they don't have access. Um, There's a lot of education involved with it. And is it appropriate for every single vestibular patient? No, but that is why you talk to a licensed clinician who knows when it's appropriate to to, um, you know, provide that intervention and when to refer out and help them find resources in their area. So um, telehealth is out there. It is usable, it's accessible, and it can be helpful, especially for those who might need it. Um, I think our next take home is um, just because a patient might test normal, um, it doesn't mean they wouldn't benefit from vestibular rehab. Um, And The examples that I have for that might be um, more along the lines of patients who are suffering from vestibular migraine um, or triple PD or persistent postural perceptual dizziness. You know, just because they might be having um, normal testing and not showing signs in between episodes, especially even in something like uh, chronic veneers, it doesn't mean that they wouldn't benefit from balance therapy or habituation or substitution training. in some cases, also Molly debarkment um, might not, you know, we testing off the charts abnormal, but they can still benefit. And a lot of this does come down to um, some habituation, some vestibular exercises, but also education, grounding techniques, sometimes working on the cervical spine because they've been so guarded for so long um, can be extremely helpful. Um, so we try to tell patients, you know, if they do get tested and they don't find anything on testing to not be alarmed, the tests are fine. It's okay that you tested normal. It doesn't mean that it's not that what you're experiencing isn't in your head. This is a, a physiological reaction that you're experiencing in your body that we can do things to help decrease that. So, you know, for, for anybody listening that does audiological testing for these patients that are still swearing they're symptomatic, you know, it, it could be something that we can address in physical therapy. Um, it just might take a little bit more time. I think that's a great point you make because I feel like it's easy for us to get, um, you know, thinking that the ear causes all dizziness, which we know it doesn't. There's a lot of systems that contribute and how the, what the brain does with that information from each system can be different, but there's a reason the patient is coming to our clinics. And I think, you know, physical therapists are focused on patients being able to get functionally back to hopefully what they want to do or what they can do. And so I think if a patient feels like they're being restricted in some way, it's an appropriate referral um, you know, to try to work on those things and get them back to live in their life. Sort of to to look at the flip side of that. In what cases maybe we find ab- may, may we um, have abnormal test results where you know maybe VRT isn't the most appropriate? In what situations would you say um, that falls into place? 
uh, unstable vestibular conditions or central issues. Um, for example, like the gentleman that I you know, referred out up to uh, MUSC to see Dr. Rizik, he was strong central signs. I mean, he uh, he was a trooper, um, wasn't, you know, uh, bothered by me videotaping his eyes so we can use it for some of our classes or video examples, but strong cerebellar central issues that didn't matter what we do, um, you know, vestibular therapy wasn't going to address his uh, symptoms. So he went up, he got tested, very heavy central signs, very abnormal testing. And the doctor agreed. He's like, yeah, he's like, vestibular therapy was not going to help this. Um, and he was one of those examples where vestibular referral came down to a balance training. But yeah, anything unstable too. So somebody with um, terrible vestibular migraines that are, they don't identify their triggers, they don't have their symptoms under control. Vestibular therapy is not going to be a good time for them to start. And you'll see this in a lot of patients, especially vestibular migraine patients say, oh my God, I tried vestibular therapy and it was awful. I felt terrible. I felt worse. Well, we probably didn't start at the right point in time in your journey here. And that's again, where that multidisciplinary approach, you know, comes in, they got the testing done next, maybe should have been, they should have seen a neurologist or somebody who can get them on medication or use other techniques to start getting those attacks under control. So unstable issues, um, significant central issues, they're not always going to be um, fit for vestibular therapy. We get a very common question. This will be our last one of, the, of our talk that we're going to throw back on you guys. I cannot tell you enough how many people ask, can you do anything for my tinnitus? Is therapy going to help my tinnitus and make it better? What can we do to educate our patients on tinnitus? What can we tell them um, and send in, in your direction for these patients? That is a great question. And we get it a lot as well. Um, I always like to tell patients that there's more than 200 reasons you could have tinnitus. There's 200 medical disorders or more that could be causing the tinnitus. And so I think it requires the patient going through a full audiologic exam to rule out where that's coming from. Because similar to dizziness, um, tinnitus can come from a central issue. It can come from a peripheral issue, just said as example of hearing loss. There's many head injury patients where maybe they've had a long pre-existing hearing loss and they haven't noticed their tinnitus until after their head injury. But the main answer is yes, there are things that can be done to, to help the tinnitus. It um, you know, may not make it go away completely for everybody, but it is a big quality of life impact, just like dizziness is. And there's actually quite a bit of um, research about the incidence of mental health issues in patients that experience tinnitus. There's a higher suicide rate in patients that experience tinnitus. And so it's something that cannot be ignored. And we know our dizzy patients already have higher uh, incidents of anxiety, depression. And so we really need to be cautious if tinnitus is, is on the table as well. But, you know, step one is referring to an audiologist. Audiologists know this is one of our primary issues we assess for. There is um, treatment. If there is hearing loss, it's, you know, hearing aids many times are the recommended treatment to manage the tinnitus. And built into the hearing aids are maskers and, you know, situations like that that can help you not notice the tinnitus. And then if it's more significant, there's cognitive behavioral therapy strategies that either an audiologist or um, a psychologist help tackle together. But there's definitely a whole spectrum. There's tinnitus retraining therapy. There's a lot in our field that we can do to help patients. So give them hope that they are not going to live with the tinnitus forever and they don't have to deal with it or, you know, be annoyed by it forever. That's good because that is definitely one of the questions I get a lot. And it's, it's, I mean, even helpful to me to know that there is hope because oftentimes we think, man, I'm just here to treat your vertigo and get you safe in terms of balance. But this whole annoying noise that you're hearing, we can send off to people like you. It's been so awesome to connect with the both of you and have you on the show and cross paths with Dose of Dizzy and Talk Dizzy to me. Um, we will for sure put in the show notes any information you two want to provide to our audience, things we talked about today or where they can find you. Is there any last tidbit that you want to share with either patients or clinicians who are listening today? I am just excited to see, you know, where both of our fields go and, you know, the collaboration between us. I think a lot of people don't know about audiology. Um, most patients don't have never heard of it unless they've have hearing loss. And so I think uh, knowledge is power in this case. And it's good to know that your ears can be connected to your dizziness and keep that in mind because you can find out more information from audiologists about your conditions, whether that's the dizziness or hearing loss. And we're all here to help and work together. And I think 
you know, working together on patients and especially difficult patients can be, you know, really beneficial when we're combining all of our disciplines. I couldn't have said that better. I didn't have said it any better. Where can we we find you guys? Um, Where can somebody who's listening find your podcast and find you guys on social media? So our main uh, source of uh, connecting with our audience is through our Instagram, a dose of dizzy podcast. Um, we also have a Twitter, uh, but you know, we, we push out uh, episodes monthly. And so any announcements of our newest episodes, as well as just sharing some of the newest research in vestibular audiology or in, and then the broader vestibular uh, literature is all really through our main Instagram page. So I encourage anyone who's interested in just learning about uh, our testing, um, whether it's a student, patient, anybody, or even just some of the uh, certain uh, disorders and, and everything we cover with regard to dizziness and to check out, check some of that out. And, uh, you know, we just really, really thank you both for this, this opportunity to, to share knowledge and ultimately um, improve the diagnosis and management of our dizzy patients. Absolutely. And by the way, audience, they do this on top of having full-time jobs. So thank you so much for what you're doing for our field. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources, including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and beep and BB treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.